Hello, I'm Montana. And I'm Samantha. And you're listening to Reaper Tales. And today I'm going to tell Samantha about the murder of Brenda Joyce Holland. But before we get started, Samantha, what am I drinking? You are drinking because you had to pick something that I can't really do. Uh, I guess it's just kind of a rum and creamer basically it's muddy river coffee rum and whatever creamer you prefer of course if you can get just a coffee rum from any local distillery or another one that you can find obviously that would work muddy river was the distillery that montana recommended on our first episode about jamie fraley and this is one of my favorite cocktails because it combines two of my favorite things coffee and alcohol well coffee and creamer too because you have that every single morning yeah that's true um so before we get are you sure you don't do the coffee rum and creamer every morning or at least every other morning i don't unfortunately i actually have to be quite with it at work because i do program same uh computer nerd stuff whatever Whatever. So the majority of my resources for this episode actually comes from a book. Yes, guys, I read an entire book for this case. You read? I know. Actual books? Who knew? So I actually bought this book twice over. I bought it on Audible and I bought the actual physical copy to be sent to me. And I don't have the physical copy. So I, I used this little guy. Ah, okay. And you can't see this, listener. <laughs> um, it is a public library card because, yes, you can still check out library books. But I did buy this book twice so that I could listen to it on Audible while I was cleaning up around the house because we're looking to buy a house. And because I wanted the actual physical book so that I could hold it in my hand and make notes from it. But... So the book is called The Lost Colony Murder on the Outer Banks, and it's by John Rayleigh. And John Rayleigh is actually from the area where this murder happened, and he remembers it. He was actually there when it happened. He was younger. I mean, he was a child when it happened, but he was present for it. He knew a lot of the locals and things like that. And he was actually a journalist. Um and decided to go ahead and write a book about it because this case hasn't really been covered very much. I looked up to see if there were other podcasts that covered it and there were a few, but the ones that I found, they were pretty short and they didn't go into the amount of detail I'm about to go into. Surprise. And just to clarify, this is actually part one of part two. So get ready buckle up buckle up that's what i was about to say (laughs) buckaroos because this is gonna be a long ride um i got several other uh resources from different websites and i will link those in the show notes but i want to go ahead and hop in because uh brenda has been on my mind for three weeks now and i'm ready to get her out there and heard fair enough Brenda Holland was born on July 8th, 1947, to mother Jerry Holland and father Charles Holland. 
She was born and raised in the western North Carolina mountains right outside of Canton. And, and it's spelled Canton, but anyone from around here is going to call it Canton. So you're welcome. Jerry was quiet, was a quiet, reliable woman, and Charles was her opposite. At 5 feet 7 inches tall and 165 pounds, Charles was all fight. His friends had nicknamed him, and I'm going to refer to him as this for the rest of this episode and going forward, as Shotgun. Okay. For his outrages. Shotgun. (laughs) That was early. That was an early one. That doesn't count. It was a half one. It doesn't count. Shotgun served in the Second World War in Europe, driving officers around because he'd learned to speak French and German in high school. He won a bronze star when he saw combat, and he fought at the Battle of the Bulge. By all accounts, Shotgun loved and adored his wife, but after the war, he seemed to have become hardened. He took up drinking, which fueled his anger and rage. Brenda also had three siblings, an older sister, Anne, a younger brother, Charles Hoyt, Charles was known as, uh, I think, Little Charles. I forgot to put it in here. Um, And a younger sister, Kim. Shotgun was known to punish his children for what he saw as transgressions when he was drunk. Ripping off his belt and whipping all the children. Jerry and Shotgun argued about his drinking. They fought about money. Apparently, like, in the book, it says that Jerry had, like, expensive taste, but... Their comparison was the fact that Jerry liked to drive, like, one of those big, uh, what was the name of the car back then? A Cadillac. She liked to drive big Cadillacs because it it made her feel, like, powerful or seen or whatever. And that was, like, the comparison in the book. And I was just like, well, I feel like a lot of people just like to drive expensive cars. It doesn't mean that everything in their life is expensive, but whatever. I mean, if you're going to spend money on something... A car is a little more worth it than designer clothing and bags, if you want my opinion. Like, you spend money on a car, you're usually going to get what you're spending your money on. Granted, fixing it's going to be expensive, I know from experience. But I'm more likely to spend the money on a car than something else. And that's also a long-term investment. Yeah. Slightly different. And I will say, like, I I thoroughly enjoyed this this book. Uh, and I will plug it again, The Lost Colony Murder on the Outer Banks by John Rayleigh. I thought he did an excellent job on the book. I thought at some points he took some creative liberties in the way that he wrote. <laughs> but I think I'm you're sure. going to get that from any book that right. you get. Uh, but it is highly... Um, what's a good way to put this? It's highly based in his own opinion. Yeah, I mean, that's how the uh, the uh, Black Widow of Hazel Green, the book that I used, it was, there was so little information. So, But he mixed in a lot of the, all of the fact that he could find. He mixed in his conjecture and his thought process and that sort of thing that fit into the facts that he could find. So I'm sure it's along these lines too, because you said this one wasn't really covered much probably limited information he could find same situation i mean you just kind of have to fill in the blanks 
Well, he definitely talked to, like, the locals that were there at the time, and he has, like, interviews with people who remember being there at the time that this happened. So I really appreciated that, and I appreciated his own take and the way he felt about that time. Again, great book. Kudos to him. I will, when we get to the point where we get to the actual crime, we're not to it yet, and I know we're going on a tangent early on, but when we get to the crime, I will tell you that he has an opinion about what happens and it's heavily written in his book, his opinion, but I'm not going to phrase it in the way that he has written it because shocker, there are six different suspects. In this. Uh. <laughs> so that's why we have to do a two-parter. Um, and I have my own opinions about it, even after reading his book. And I think that he makes a great point, but there are other people to take into account. And that's the only thing I want to say about it. Like I loved his book. I think he did a great job and I recommend it. Buy it if you can. You know, I listened to him. I actually listened to him on a podcast that was promoting his book before this, which I typically don't do. I don't listen to other podcasts that cover the same subject because I don't want like my opinion grayed out by it, but he was pretty much just kind of promoting his book and the way he, he talked about it, you know, you could tell he was really passionate about it. So I want to give him all the kudos again, go and buy it and we'll put it in the show notes. But uh, anyway, back to our case shotgun would slap push and shove Jerry in front of their children. Jerry would flee with the children going to a relative's house and returning after a few days. I'm assuming she came back when like shotgun had sobered up and like he had calmed down and probably apologized and said it was never going to happen again. Yada, yada, yada. Yeah, it was, it was that time. I'm not excusing it, but you know, it was that time. While shotgun was, while shotgun was known to be physically abusive, I honestly believe he loved and adored his family, especially his kids. It's apparent to me that he was self-medicating his PTSD with alcohol. The well, Vietnam let's make something clear, though. Toxic people, abusive people, oftentimes genuinely love the people that they abuse and the people that they're toxic towards. Yeah, that's true. They either don't have the self-realization uh, they can't really look at themselves and genuinely see what they're doing. Or it's, it's rarely that they don't care. They either genuinely don't see it or there's something in them that cannot acknowledge it at all. So I agree. that is very much could be what's going on here. It's, it's, it's possible. It does happen. Obviously you have personality disorders where they just genuinely don't care and they just do whatever they want. But situations like this where it's apparent and they keep going back and forth a lot of times it is like they genuinely love them they genuinely think i'm gonna do better i won't do it again i really feel bad and they genuinely feel bad there's something in them that needs treatment for their mental health for whatever's going on they don't seek it they just get in that cycle well, so i'm just saying you can you can have both it doesn't have to be mutually exclusive no i know and i just want to make it clear like for all accounts, he was a caring, loving father, but he also abused his children and he abused his wife. And, you know, it and goes this was into, when did you say it was 1940 
1987. Yeah, so they definitely yeah. didn't have any kind of treatment for coming off the tail end of back our that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Well, that's going to be released after. But you know, but yeah. Know. Anyway, uh, we did that earlier, but I mean, they they still don't. But back then, definitely, they didn't have like the treatment options or or even make it a a, a priority to help people coming out of these types of situations with their mental health and PTSD. That wasn't even acknowledged. Yeah, no. And, and it wasn't, uh, he, and for that time, like he, and I say he suffered with PTSD. He obviously saw combat. And the only way that a lot of those, a lot of those combat veterans could deal with their own emotions and their mental health issues and PTSD was to soak it in alcohol. Um, well, you didn't talk about it. <laughs> you didn't talk about it. Suck it and up, what, Buttercup. What really irked him too was the simple fact that, you know, 50s, 60s, when uh, Brenda's kind of growing up and he's going through these phases of abuse and uh, alcohol abuse and things like that, the Vietnam War was going on. And it enraged Shotgun to hear about the quote unquote hippies who were protesting the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. especially since his war wasn't covered as much. Yeah. And the Vietnam war was getting covered so much. He just, he couldn't stand it and it just sent him into a rage and he would go down the spiral of just this constant cycle of like abuse. I'm okay. Abuse. I'm okay. Alcohol. I'm abuse. you know, just this whole thing. So regardless of all of this, Brenda was still a loving, caring, smart, and fiercely independent girl slash woman. Her elementary school teachers praised her in report cards. One said, and I quote, Thank you for letting me have your little girl to teach and love these past two years. This was a quote from Mrs. Cook, who taught her in the first and second. I know, there's so many cute things like this. I just... I want you to understand. I mean, cute Brenda, but also cute teachers. Yes. They, like, obviously, they loved what they were doing. Exactly. On top of all of this, her father's abuse and alcoholism and her just being a super cute pigtailed bitch. She also had, like, these huge, like, brown eyes. And she had, like, a gap. I didn't put it in my notes. She had a gap between her front Aww. teeth. And, like, in the book, the guy was, like, she wasn't like conventionally pretty or whatever, blah, blah, blah. She had a gap in the front of her. And I was like, that's adorable. I think that's cute as fuck. What are you talking about? That is adorable. <sighs> also, yeah. some of the most beautiful women in Hollywood currently have gaps in their teeth. Yeah. So. And she was gorgeous. Let me just tell you. She had this flowing like brown hair. Um, anyway. It may not be conventional, but brown eyes and brown hair are a gorgeous combination. Just yeah, in my opinion. She also dies at blonde later, but we'll get into that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> anyways. All Haven't that, we all gone blonde at some point? <laughs> not me. <laughs> well, I have been every other color, so it only makes sense. I will soon. Once I cut my hair off and donate it, I'm actually going to dye my hair for the first time. So, um, But that's just about me. And we're not talking about me. We're talking this about Brenda. Um. So her sister uh, suffered from, like, chronic asthma. Her younger sister, uh, Kim, not her older sister, Anne. Um, since, and because, well, Jerry 
Brenda's mom, Jerry, had a uh, baby sister who suffered from chronic asthma as well. And her baby sister actually died. Oh. And so it kind of like Jerry was very focused on her um, youngest daughter or her youngest child. And she spent a lot of time trying to like care for Kim and ensure that she had everything she that she needed. And because of this, Brenda took on a role as like a motherly figure to her two younger siblings. So that's Kim who was sick and uh, her, her younger brother, Charles. Brenda would actually take him on little dates with her and doted on him. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Charles it sounds like my stepdaughter with her younger brother. It's the same sort of thing. Yeah. Her. So she like Charles and for all accounts, Charles like adored Brenda. He just loved her to death. And this was during Brenda's high school years. And at that time, her older sister, Anne, had actually already like married and moved out and, you know, gone to live her own life. So it was really up to Brenda to take care of the younger two and make sure that things were going accordingly in a letter to her family. I just love this. I had to include it. I thought you would enjoy it in a letter to her family. She wrote about a trip that she took to Washington DC and there's a lot to this letter and there's some stuff in it that is talking about like her current living situation at her college and stuff like that. It's not really, it's not super important. I mean, it's important overall and they cover it in the book, but I included this because in that letter, and this just shows what type of person she is. She wrote a little story in there for Charles and Kim for them to read. Cause they, at the time you have to think like, this was the time when uh, they were doing the space moon, the moon landing and, uh, the Roswell thing had come up and all that stuff. So like space was really right. prominent and things like that. So she wrote this little story in the middle of this letter that said, and I quote from the letter, my goodness, there's a flying saucer there. And this is her writing <laughs> from the plane. She's on the plane uh, to Washington, D.C. It is on the tip of our wing and there are Martians getting out or are they Plutonians? They appear friendly <laughs> enough. One of them is looking at me. They're darling little creatures in their gold space, space suits and red helmets. And they're only about 12 inches tall. Oh, he's talking to me. He wants me to take a ride in his ship. I must go. I may never have this chance again. <laughs> it was a lovely ride. We zoomed all over America. It's a beautiful land, you know. If only it could have lasted longer. The little guy's name was McCurtain, and he lives on the planet Venus. He was very intelligent, and he taught me the meaning of friendship. I was only with him for five Earth minutes, but was a, it was a year in their time zone because he made it last that long. I will tell you sometime some of the things he taught me. I can now laugh at my own problems. <laughs> That's so cute. <laughs> and creative, too. Like, I've got a lot in there, but that's really cute. I was just like, Also, the way she writes. I know. It's adorable. <laughs> it was, And she just, like, this whole, like, letter that she wrote home, she made sure, she always, like, made sure to include something where her, like, younger siblings could, like, be invested in what she was writing about or whatever she was doing. It was, 
This type of person she was. It was cute. She was lovely. And thoughtful. And obviously loved her siblings. Yeah. So, obviously, Brenda was just sweet and incredibly creative. She was also very intelligent. After she graduated from high school, Brenda had her heart set on attending Campbell College. She had been nudged towards this decision by her family doctor, Dr. Hugh Matthews, which I, I forgot to put this in my notes, and I'm pretty sure Dr. Hugh Matthews was actually the doctor who delivered her as a baby. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So, little tidbit there. You're welcome. Been around, been around for a while. Yeah. So he, like, encouraged her to, like, go to this college and stuff like that. And uh, Shotgun was actually on board with it, but Jerry was not. She was worried they didn't have enough money to send Brenda to college and didn't want her to be so far away from home. So in steps Dr. Matthews again, who helps Brenda with tuition and introduces her to his friends at Campbell. Immediately, Brenda becomes became involved in the school's drama program as a costumer. She worked on the production. She worked on productions such as uh, Brigadoon and Oklahoma. During her summer break in 1967, Brenda decided to spend the summer. Uh, let me take a pause there, real quick. Actually, during her um, her involvement in that uh, costuming position at Campbell College, she actually stayed longer after her break. I forgot to put this in the notes. I went ahead and went into something else because I'm great like that. Um, she stayed longer during, during a break because, and she wrote this in a letter basically saying she felt like they paid her too much for her work. And so she stayed on longer to do more work backstage. Oh, honey. Yeah. <laughs> oh, honey. So, Yeah. Anyway, during her summer break in 1967, this is a different time, Brenda decided to spend the summer on Mantillo, working on the production of The Lost Colony. So get this, her parents had to sign a contract for her to take the job, even though she was 19. Okay. They, they did, but apparently reluctantly. Did it say why? Why she they had to sign a contract? Yeah. She was an unwed, unwed woman. Oh, uh, my bad. I miss that. I forget sometimes. Mm-hmm. Of course, at so. 19, I was bed, but. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, her parents were a bit upset that Brenda hadn't been home since Easter break, and she wouldn't be visiting before leaving for Mantio Island. Brenda would be making a whopping $45 per week. <sighs> Which actually, Even with inflation, that's ridiculously low. It would, like, $45 a week was actually decent. It was okay for that time, I guess. I don't know. I, I didn't really, whatever. Um, <clears throat> especially I mean, I guess if you could, did a comparison of that type of job with that type of job today... And actually compared that, it, it it might actually be comparable. Maybe. But I'm just saying, like, as, as for a job to live on, like, even with inflation, that wouldn't, that wouldn't equate. Well, yeah. And kind of circle back to um, 
the whole like contract thing and having her parents have to sign for it. There were like several different letters in this book that talked about like at the time she lived in a dorm or she did live in a dorm and she actually had to write home to her uh, parents to get permission to move into a house, a rented room in a house. And it was a supervised house. So the, the woman running the house, she would be kind of like a, uh, what do you call those? RA or something like that. Mm-hmm. But she wanted to move there because it was right outside of campus and it was $20 cheaper a month. So, but she had to get permission, not just from the school, but from her parents and she had to go through all of this stuff to be able to. <laughs> so it just tells you kind of like what kind of the time time she was living in at that time. So forty five dollars a week, I you know it, get a girl. I don't know. Yeah, maybe <clears throat> you do you boo. Before we get into her move, though, I want to talk about Mantio and the Lost Colony production a little bit. And it's funny because. We're actually doing, here's a little teaser for anyone who's listening. We're actually doing a uh, vanishing town or ghost town episode here soon. It's going to be another joint one like we did uh, What Lurks Below. And I originally had a different town that I was going to do. But in researching this whole thing and coming across the Lost Colony production, it is actually about a the original colony that pretty much vanished when English Mm -hmm. settlers came over here. So I'm going to cover that. I'm not going to go into great detail right now, but there was a production made over in Roanoke Island, Manteo Island, um, about this. About the Roanoke colony. Yeah. yeah. I've heard that. Some of it. I've not heard the story. I'll still be surprised. I promise. So that's where this is. Just to give you kind of an understanding of that. That's where this is going to take place. Mantillo Island is where she is moving to. But Mantillo Town was named after an American Indian by the same name. And I just wanted to include this. This is just a little snippet about the town that I wanted to include because it pisses me off. And hi, I always have to piss myself off about anything and everything. Apparently. (laughs) Mantillo was of uh, Croatan's of the Croatans tribe of American Indians. And it's real fucked up, but the English took Mantillo on a trip to London in 1584 and they quote unquote civilized him. Sounds about right. Uh, and so for now, that's all I'm going to say about the history because I'm going to cover it in our disappearing towns. Um, but there's a huge production that goes on um, in Mantillo and they make a lot of revenue on it. And, You'll find out real soon that the whole town is pretty much centered around this production of The Lost Colony. And with good reason. College kids and people trying to hit it big in the biz. What the fuck did I put biz in there? (laughs) You know, as they call it. The cool kids call it nowadays. As those professionals in Hollywood might have you believe. (laughs) uh, Came from all over to work on the production. One reason why... This was such a hotbed for that is because Andy Griffith played several different roles over the years in The Lost Colony before he became famous for his show, The Andy Ooh. Griffith Show. What? 
at that time, he still lived in Mantillo with his children at the time. And the people in this book actually talk about like talk about like playing with his children at the time and how Andy Griffith would show up to the shows and all of that stuff. So insane. I thought that was pretty interesting. He 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 got his start where he got his start. He played several. Well, I mean, the Lost Colony production, especially back then, was very problematic in the fact that they had a bunch of white people playing Native Americans, but whatever. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I'm just going to go ahead and put that out. He didn't put that in the book, but I just, whatever. But Andy Griffith actually said, uh, you know how a lot of people say that Mount Airy, North Carolina, was based on, or uh, Mayberry was actually based on Mount Airy? North Carolina, which is where Andy Griffith is from. But according to this book, Andy Griffith actually said, I spent my entire life trying to get away from Mount Airy. And if anything, Mayberry is based on Mantio. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But that's according to that book. (laughs) Uh, Fair. I mean, not hard to believe, though, either. No. No. I mean, it was a picturesque town. It still is. Um, I've been to, well, I haven't been to that portion of the Outer Banks, but I've been to the Outer Banks and that whole area is just, I mean, it's beautiful. You've got a marshy side, you've got like a beachy side. And I imagine like back then in the late 60s, early 70s, it was just music and beer and weed and free love. and <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> My bread and butter. (laughs) (laughs) Is it heaven? Maybe. It might be. So, now back to her move. Brenda had flowing brown hair before she moved to Mantio. But just days before she moved there, she actually dyed her hair blonde and cut it into a stylish bob. All right, then. Late 60s. That was the trend. That was the thing. Bob's, and I wrote this in my, what the fuck? <laughs> I wrote this in my notes. Bob's were like soup stylish at that time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, why do you do this to yourself? I don't know. <laughs> you, you were going there when you wrote these notes. <laughs> I said... And Brenda's mom did not approve of her new do. <laughs> not surprising, though. I mean, she lightened it and she cut it off. I mean, either one of those things probably wouldn't have been great, but doing both. Well, it's funny because Jerry didn't approve of Brenda's new hairdo, but Jerry colored her hair blonde for years. Eh, yeah, that sounds about so. right. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> Do as I say, not as I do. Exactly. Brenda's friend and sometimes boyfriend, Daryl Midget, was the one to pick Brenda up and take her to Mantio. This was actually Daryl's hometown. Okay. So is that where they met? Well, yeah. And I actually, I go into detail a little bit later, but Brenda met, I can just skip over it later, but Brenda met Daryl, um, at Campbell College, because that's where he went to college. Mantua is where he lives, and he grew up. It's his hometown. 
And she actually, I didn't put this in here, but I'll go ahead and include it. She actually did a trip a few weeks earlier for like a, uh, I think it was a literary retreat. I don't, I, I'm pretty sure that's what it was. To an island, uh, I want to say a little bit north of Mantio. And she fell in love with the area. And so that's why she decided to actually go to Mantio for the summer to work on the production of uh, The Lost Colony. So they were together and she knew he was there. He was from there, obviously, but that didn't necessarily play as much of a role. Oh, going over there. No, 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 definitely not. You're, you're going to quickly find out that like Brenda, while she dated Daryl, she actually dates a lot of other guys and I will get into it. She's, she's not committed to one person, you know, Yes, girl. Yeah, get it. I'm all here for it. (laughs) You do the thing, honey. Do all the damn things. Brenda rents rented a room in the home of Dick and Cora Twyford. Nailed it. Nailed it. (laughs) And Dick and Cora actually had two younger daughters. Um, They were named Penny and Debbie. Everyone kind of played like a part in the town. Dick actually works like an actual job. Well, I mean, every everybody who works on the play had an actual job. But Cora and her two younger daughters, Penny and Debbie, worked as like colonists in the Lost Colony production. So like they worked on that play pretty much constantly. And honestly, like pretty much everyone in the town either has worked in or on the production, or is currently working in or on the production. You're talking about everybody in, you're not everybody in town, but like. Pretty much everybody oh, in wow. town, like a local okay. person has done something for this production. It is, it is their cash. That's massive. Yeah. I think at one point, and I didn't write down the actual statistics, but it was one summer they sold like 500 and something thousand tickets to this. And you Whoa. talk about you talk about that, and then you talk about like the people who are coming in to rent like places to stay because they want to go to the beach, they want to go to the Lost Colony production. That's one of the major draws to it. You've got people coming to restaurants, so everybody is and just... repeat customers because they're experiencing something. They may want to do it again, coming back, bringing other people. Mm-hmm. And then you have all those people coming in from out of town who are wanting to make it. To my words, make it in the biz. Um, <laughs> you can't see it, but she did the attaboy. I did the attaboy. Funny. I didn't mean to do that. The biz. <laughs> My God. <laughs> <laughs> what is happening? At some point, we're going to release these videos for Patreon if that ever happens. <laughs> And you guys are going to get to see the whole thing. At <laughs> one point, yeah. but right now, no, you miss, no. Out, you, you miss out on some of it. <laughs> some of it's lost when it's just voice. Yes. Anyway, so everyone's involved in this production. Everyone, and it's just it's this hotbed of just people wanting to work on this production, and everything in this town is pretty much centered around this production. So, even the people Brenda lived with worked on the production, including her soon-to-be roommate, Molly Black. So, 
Brenda rented an efficiency apartment in Cora and Dick's, um, Dick and Cora. That could be a grade book. Uh, Dick and Cora. Go for a hike. Um, (laughs) the fuck? Um, that rhymed actually. All of that. Go go for a jaunt. A lovely jaunt. Um, they rented an efficiency apartment there and Molly Black would be her roommate who was also working at the Lost Colony production. Okay. Molly Black was a student from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. So, a bunch of college kids, too. Mm-hmm. And was sure. this during the summer? This was during the summer. Okay, so, summer so it's break. a lot of college kids that are off for summer break and mm-hmm. might even be close to that location. So it was probably an easy job. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily call it easy. Well, no, I mean, easy to get. I mean, they're probably always looking for help. So mm-hmm. just show up and offer to do something for money. Well, and I know it's not the same thing, but I mean, just think about the Ren Fair, Renaissance Fair that they yeah. put on here every year. Like, that is a massive production, and they have to have so many different workers. Right. It's, it's kind of the same thing. It's a bunch of locals who do this every year, and... If you haven't been to the North Carolina Renaissance Festival, or if you haven't been to one near you, go. It's pretty awesome. It's pretty great. Get a turkey leg. Uh, drink a bunch of beer from Stein's. Buy a $50 journal that you don't need. <laughs> you know, whatever. Do the things. Do the things. Brenda soon fell into a routine with work. She quickly made friends with several of the workers on the Lost Colony and spent time with them after work. Walking the streets, drinking beer, and discussing their lives and dreams after the production was done each night. Even the locals grew to uh, love Brenda and accepted her as well. It could be kind of like a closed-minded area. You know, you have a bunch of people. Not closed-minded. That's not exactly what I want to say. I want to say, like, they're set in their ways. And, you know, especially in those tourist towns and things like that, a lot of the locals can grow to resent the people that come into work because mm-hmm. they're kind of taking business from them. But it seemed like the locals actually really enjoyed Brenda. And just to kind of like give you an idea of what another idea of what type of person Brenda was. At one point, Brenda taught a young boy, David Payne. He was 13 years old, how to swim one day at Nags Head Beach. David had been taken in by a Montillo, Montillo family as a foster child and eventually adopted by the family. And David suffered from like rheumatoid arthritis at a young age. So he had never learned how to swim. So one day she was just like, I'll teach you how to swim. And so it actually in the book, it interviews David and he's like, I just remember that. And you know, that's how I learned to swim. So yeah, it's just like, all right, fine. We'll do it. Yeah, I mean, that's... It's it's easy. Just watch me and and do the same thing. Yeah. So, was it... It wasn't because he couldn't then. He just didn't know how. So, no, but just nobody had taken the time to do it. Mm Mm-mm. Okay. Cool. So, Brenda dated a few different young men while in Mantio. First, she went on a few dates with her friend, Daryl Midget, who's the one who drove her um, to Mantio. They had met, and this is where I'd get into it, they had met at uh, uh, Campbell College. Eventually, Brenda started dating Danny Barber, a dark-haired chorus singer. 
He'd been in the U.S. Army band and was now attending Carolina. And I assume that's like the light blue Carolina, which we hate in this house. (laughs) Um, If you know, you know. In a play built on music, Barber, a tenor in his third season, was a big deal. One of several singers featured in photos in the play program. So he worked on the play as well. And he was a big part of it. Brenda wasn't exclusively dating Danny. She dated a few other men and told Rainey, the Lost Colony's costumer and Brenda's boss. So I'll reference Rainey a few times. Rainey Rains. No. Yes, it's Rainey Rains. No. Was this his actual name or was this his stage name? She. Oh, sorry. She. Yeah. Uh, This is her actual name. Rainy, Rainy. I don't know if I want to say her parents were brilliant or mean. I'm going to go with I really brilliant. don't know. I mean, that really goes well together, but also I can totally see her getting made fun of like yeah. her entire life. For sure. But she's like this steadfast, like mama bear, like boss lady. And you'll see that in a little bit. <laughs> kind of sounds like me it's kind of sounds like you she she (laughs) did remind me of you like yeah she definitely did um so uh brenda dated a few other men and told rainy that she believed one of them rob breeze was trying to take advantage of her Rainey knew of breeze and advised caution especially in dates that went past 11 p.m Brenda told Rainey she could handle him. Brenda also spent plenty of time with Molly Black, her roommate. They went out for beers, though Brenda wasn't much of a drinker, and she was known to leave her beer sitting around long enough for it to go warm, which, sacrilege. Yeah, I was just thinking gross. (laughs) Yeah. That's as bad as spilled beer. It just makes me cry. Same. Um... Their summer seemed amazing, full of beaches, booze, and music, though the islanders and locals tended to not vibe well. In his book, there was a lot of descriptions on the town and its residents, but basically it seemed like a bunch of, you ain't from around here, this is literally in my Mm -hmm. nose, what the fuck? (laughs) But basically it seemed like a bunch of, and I quote, because I put it in quotes, you ain't from around these parts unquote from myself type of thing you know what's funny is even when you don't tell me that you're quoting things i don't notice because it sounds like you're actually making the exact reactions that you would normally make in these situations unscripted i i would i really honestly can't tell the difference at this point so you don't have to tell me. I mean, you're literally typing it as you're thinking it. So I am. You're gonna. We've already proven when we re-recorded the thing with Kelsey. You're gonna say the exact same thing anyway. So why not just type it all out? It's it's all mush in. It's all mush out, <laughs> regardless. Just so. saying, you don't have to report <laughs> that you actually had it in the writing. I won't. I don't know the difference at this okay. point. Okay, good. You do good. This is a good thing. Good job, Montana. I do good. (laughs) You do good. (laughs) So, also, you know, the whole, like, um, local versus non-local, there was also a very racially divided town here. There was the black side of town and the white side of town. I mean, North Carolina in the 70s. 
most <laughs> places in the South in the 70s. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of kind of gross stuff that was mentioned in this book. And it's just him, like, quoting other people and things like that. And I know it's not him saying these things because he makes a stance pretty clear in a lot of ways when it comes to, like, police and um, people of color and that. And he seems very liberal, but it just seemed kind of gross the way that people kind of thought about black people in this town at that time. Like they were fine, but they had their own place. I think it's important. And this is something that I've talked to my husband about. I think it's very important that when we're talking about history, that we quote it correctly. I agree. Otherwise people do not understand what you're looking at from. And I want to say 30 years ago, but I know it's not 30. It's 50 at this point. But when you're looking back at these times, it's important for us, even if obviously we don't believe that way, even despite the fact that it, it probably felt really yucky for him to write it that way, but it was important because you felt the way that you should have felt when you read that. Yeah, exactly. You read it as this is not, sick. this is gross. I this hate is it. just, it, it's making me a little sick to my stomach. Yeah. I want to kind of put it down for a minute and, move past this and then I'll go back to it. It's important that we do that so that the people reading it can have those feelings Well, and, and acknowledge it. That's all about uh, anti-racism uh, uh, learning and learning how to become an anti-racist and an anti-racist advocate and things like that is you're going to feel uncomfortable and you should feel uncomfortable. And we don't need to whitewash it. We don't need yeah. to pretend it didn't happen. It, it just, happened, and it needs to be quoted as it happened. It needs to be said exactly how it happened. We don't need to make it nicer. We don't need to eliminate things that make us uncomfortable because only in being uncomfortable do we learn. Yeah, exactly. And some of the quotes in there, they just made me very uncomfortable, and I hated it. But at the same time, it kind of like painted the picture of what the time was. Mm-hmm. And while you know, it was kind of a more accepting place, it was also less accepting in the fact that on the face of everything, and this goes along with a lot of like, I'm not going to get deeply into it, but white women trying to be uh, uh, faces for the Black Lives Movement matter and how they can whitewash things and look as if they're an advocate for black people, but on the face of it, but their actions don't, reflect what they're saying and that's kind of what this town was like they accepted black people they kind of accepted gay people as well but there was this like nasty underlying know your place trend yes you can be here but know your place yeah exactly and so just that's just kind of like painting the picture of what the town kind of was at the time and i'm not saying that the town was innately bad there there is there are some accounts that we'll get to a little bit later where the police actually did the right thing when it came to a black man <laughs> for once. Yeah. Um, well, we'll say for once, but you, yeah, I know you don't yes. hear it as often as we would like. And especially way. not in the seventies. Well, especially um, not. Does it ever talk about how Brenda felt at this time? Do it, we ever find out? It doesn't, but I have to. I have to think that she was pretty accepting and things like that because as she moved here uh, and throughout the book, it kind of talks about how like her 
her style changed. So she went from being a very kind of like conservatively dressed person. Um, no, I wouldn't say conservatively dressed. She didn't have the equipment to make the outfits that she needed. But once she started making outfits, she started making more like she made like a leopard print design at one point. She wore it out. She dyed her hair blonde. She actually had um, a friend who was a gay male friend and he was openly gay. And so I just have to think that that doesn't necessarily mean that you're it doesn't mean that you're accepting and open to everybody's lifestyle or like their race or anything like that. But I have to think that had she continued to live because spoiler alert, if the title of this episode didn't give it away, she dies. Um, Unfortunately. That she probably would have been a more, um, I hate to say liberal, but more open, open, open-minded and progressive thinking. Yeah. Progressive thinking. That's what I was trying to think say do whatever uh, we're All three things. we're three pages in we're 50 minutes in and i have eight pages so all right fine i'll stop talking Jeez. no no, no keep all talking right, i love whatever. the questions bring them they're just painting a picture of brenda for me and i freaking besides we had a comment that our episodes weren't long enough so you're welcome you're welcome <laughs> <laughs> so Around this time, there were also, like, a lot of bar fights and some killings and crime and things like that that happened. Um, this is a very different picture than you painted earlier. Well, no, it was more like locals fighting with, like, out-of-towners, you know, get out okay. of here. You're, like, hitting on a woman that is a local, and that's kind of, like, my area. You know, just okay. the, the locals and the preppies from out-of-towners kind of getting into it and stuff like that. And then when they talked about killings and... They, they talked about, like, uh, stabbings and stuff like that. But they were referencing a lot of, like, the black community then. And they were like, we know what's happening over there, blah, blah, blah. And again, we're not going to go back into it, but... <laughs> we already did. We already did. Um, so it was kind of like that. But, you know, all of this aside, it was local stuff that normally happened around here. But nothing prepared the island for what would occur that summer. June 30th was a Friday, and Brenda had a date with Danny Barber after work. Earlier that week, she had gone on a date with Rob Breeze, their third, and it had not gone well. Rob, a former college football player, was in his mid-20s and divorced. He worked in a beach business his family owned, so Rob didn't work on the production. Um, Rob was a muscle... By the way, I just want to make a comment. You sounded super Southern. On the word production, by the way. Let's, keep, let, right. let's go ahead and move on. I just wanted to make a point because you did during our cryptids episode. So Good. keep going. That's exactly what I want to go for. <laughs> um, he was a muscled, handsome, smooth-talking, blue-eyed man. Is that country enough for you? Almost. He'd taken Brenda to his apartment that night. Whatever happened there really devastated Brenda. Brenda later told Rainy, I'm no good. Rains told oh, her, honey. yeah, Rains told her that wasn't true and tried to cheer her up. Brenda told Rainy she wasn't going to see Rob anymore and that Rob kept trying to pursue her. He came to her boarding house once and had his friend try to intercede for him and phone calls to the house. One night, Brenda actually stayed home so she wouldn't run into Rob. Hmm. Yeah. 
This also, is what she what Rainy said was like immediately what I wanted to say, by the way. But also that started happening. Girl, I'd be outside of that place being like, you better step off. Go. Yeah. Um, Bitch, please. It doesn't say like what happened, but uh, my assumption is that he. And this is my assumption. I think he probably raped her very aggressively. It seems like it. And then when she got away, he wasn't happy with it. Yeah, because he wasn't in control anymore. Mm -hmm. A lot of rapists. Um, Brenda, so the night of her date, she actually had to work. The night that she went on a date with uh, Danny, she had to work. But going into work, she went ahead and like dressed for this date. So she wore a leopard skin teddy. Dang, girl. (laughs) All right. And over the top of it, she put on a maroon skirt and a multicolored blouse. She wore her favorite silver necklace. She'd uh, won back home the previous summer for being Miss Congeniality in the local beauty pageant. Along with brown sandals and her big blue and white canvas handbag with its braided rope handle. Inside the bag, she had her cosmetics and Zorba the Greek a book she was reading that summer. Oh my gosh, that reminds me of the movie Big. I think that's what I think that's what the machine was. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> that is so cool. So she Also is- her outfit? Yes. Fire. Yeah. yeah. Also, she is us and she has to have a book wherever <laughs> she goes. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> if I'm reading a book at a bar, I'm not asking you to come ask me about the book i'm asking you to leave me alone exactly leave me to my book and my beer i'm good thank you though just listener just so you know samantha and i will go out to breweries (laughs) together and just read at breweries while we try beer not talking to each other absolutely this is our friendship we stay in the sun for a moment and then i am um I burn in in five minutes, and so we stay five minutes, and then we go back under the shade for a while, and then reapply sunscreen, and then go out for five minutes, and then go back in the shade, rinse, repeat. Well, now because I've had skin cancer, this is true. <laughs> now, now you're in the same boat. Oh God, I miss the sun. Um, so the following evening. On Saturday, July first, the crew of the Lost Colony had begun to worry. Brenda was missing. Brenda was not known to stay out overnight, and she hadn't returned to the Twyford Twyford house after Cora and Dick's house, okay? Yeah, um, that's what I would call it from now on. After her date with Danny. It was unlike her not to show up or return home after a date. Cora, Brenda's landlord, told Rainy Rains. She was concerned about Brenda, and Rainey told John Fox, the general manager of the play. John began to pace and chain smoke with worry. Many of the crew members... Blah, 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 blah. Crew members? Those damn crew members. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> kind of the- like salamanders, but different. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Um, many of the crew members saw Brenda riding off with Danny the night before. During intermission, John 
pulled Danny aside and asked him about Brenda. Danny told John he saw Brenda uh, last around 2 a.m. that morning. He said he let her out in front of her house. Cora, Brenda's landlord, hearing this, spoke up and said, That's not true, Danny. Brenda didn't come home last night. Call him out. Danny quickly changed his story, telling John Fox, Red flag one. Well, Mr. Fox, Mrs. Twyford is right. Brenda and I went back to my house after a night out at Nags Head. We went up to my room and we talked while lying on my bed. I fell asleep and when I woke up about dawn today, Brenda was gone. I just figured she walked home. Sure. Rainey directed John to call Rob Breeze at his business. Rob sounded alarmed and told John he hadn't seen Brenda in a week or more. At 9.20 p.m., John called the sheriff's office to report Brenda missing. When the play ended, John hurried over to the sheriff's office to drop off programs that included Brenda's photo. For their part, the police took the disappearance seriously from the jump. There you go. Yep. They actually, the the deputy who took in the flyers actually went and handed them out to the other police officers that night and all of that. Well, and that's probably one of those things where it's a benefit of a lot of people kind of knowing your, your day-to-day activities. I mean, she had a landlord that was like, no, she didn't come home. I didn't see her. Definitely something going on. I'm going to call him out on his lie just now. And then you've got this guy... That, sure, he went on a date with her, but other people know how she is. Oh, wait, I'm going to change my story real quick because she called me out. And then you've got that her boss saying what she knows because she knows a little bit about it. And then also, I mean, so it's like everybody is collaborating and making it clear that there's definitely something wrong here. Yeah, exactly. On all sides of it. Personal, work, home, everything. Yeah, and it just wasn't like her. Even if Brenda went on a date and even if she was out late, she was home that night. She didn't stay overnight. You know, she didn't miss work. She was always there on time. She was reliable, blah, blah. Not saying that you're, you know, whatever. It just wasn't like her. And so it 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 really worried everybody. So in enters Frank Cahoon. Frank Cahoon is 60 years old. And he was the dare county high sheriff during this investigation high sheriff the highest of the high (laughs) okay (laughs) that's a new one but okay he has good intentions okay apparently all right on sunday morning never mind i'm not gonna make that comparison um because i don't think he is on sunday morning at 7 30 the sheriff cahoon met with john fox John relayed that John Fox is the general manager of the play. Thank Uh, you for reminding me. John relayed that Brenda hadn't shown up to work and his conversation and he relayed his conversation with Danny and about taking her home and then him admitting that he didn't. Hang on. I think I have to burp. Yep. Are you muted? I just muted myself. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> I was about to take a sip of my drink. Oh, go ahead. Um, <clears throat> Frank Cahoon immediately drove out to Danny Barber's house. Danny lived in a two-story wooden house on Burnside Road with two roommates. 
Charles, Charles, Earl Charles Meares Jr. was a Duke University graduate student in forestry. And Rodney Perkins Brett, an excitable Navy veteran from Virginia's nearby Tidewater region, who worked at Nag Heads Carolina Hotel. Carolinian Hotel. At 28, Brett was older than his two roommates who were in their mid-20s. It kind of described... All right. I I think... And I might be getting the two mixed up. But I'm pretty sure that um, Rodney Brett is actually gay. So in okay. the book, it, it describes him as a very eccentric person. And that women loved him and all this other stuff. But... And... I know it may seem like his homosexuality doesn't really play a part in this, but it will in part two. Okay. So just keep that in mind. The, uh, I mean, I feel like at the time, the time being what it is, more than likely it would probably at some point yeah, have there's, something to do with something. There's a fucking stupid theory that the police come out with. I, yeah. So. I had a feeling. Okay, because keep going. Homosexuality was rampant. Uh, or homosexuality, um, homophobia was rampant. Oh, uh, yeah. Also, homosexuality was too. We just weren't talking about it. Hey, it's been it's been around for a while. Hey, hey spoiler alert! <laughs> Since <Hi>. we've been <laughs> around, it's been around so thousands of years. Hey, uh, Miris, the other roommate, was doing an internship with the West Virginia Pulp and Paper Company. Uh, West Vaco and drove a 1960 Candy Apple Red MG convertible. I don't know what that is, but maybe you can ask Paul. He might know. I'm MG? sure he does. MG. Yeah. It's nice. Uh, Very nice. He was a Catholic boy with a wry sense of humor. Apparently, he was amazing at shooting. <laughs> and I included this because I just could not. <laughs> Apparently, he was amazing at shooting and had outshot the Mantillo police chief, C.C. Duval, on an outing. He also once shot a rattlesnake directly in the neck when it perched up to attack him. Then he turned the snakeskin into a band for a hat. What a character. <laughs> what a character. <laughs> Miris and Brett lived downstairs in the home and Danny lived upstairs. Uh, just to clarify, because I know it's a little confusing for me. Brett is the older gentleman who rented the home. Miris is the younger one um, who has a girlfriend. He drives the convertible. And Danny is the person who was last on the date with... By the way, Brenda. I just want to take a second and say, you made an assumption that I didn't know what you were talking about. And I did know what you were talking about as far as a car. I don't have to ask my husband. Oh, well, I didn't know. And your husband is obsessed <laughs> with cars. Let me see. Oh, that's cute. It's very nice. Not cheap. Uh, there you go. Yeah. Flashy. <clears throat> it's it it's way flashier than the, uh, what was it? The, the, uh, the one her mom liked. Why can I not think of it? Now I can't think of it. Thank you. The the big car. Why can't correct not Chrysler? It starts with a C. You said it earlier. I don't Why remember. Can't I think of it. Ah, dang. My brain is literally mashed potatoes. I know. Yeah. Same. Anyway, <laughs> it's definitely more expensive than than the cars that her mom liked. Is all I'm saying. Okay. 
Well, good for him. Um, <laughs> that's all I have. To, I don't know anything about cars and I really just don't care. Well, basically, it's kind of like the whole um, compensating, right? Mm -hmm. So big truck, little guy, typically, little bitty car, big guy, happens a lot. Um, I'm not saying all the time, but it happens a lot. And that's the thing. It's a joke about compensating. Same thing with expensive convertibles. Well, Come whatever. On. He drove a hey, car. Let's make it look like I have a lot of money. He drove a car that was fancy, blah, blah, blah. And the only reason I bring <laughs> up the car is because there is a portion in the investigation that involves different cars. And so I'm just putting it in there because, fuck, mashed potato brains. Uh, anyway. Man, part two <laughs> is going to be completely different than part one. <laughs> it is. We're going to actually go over all these suspects. <laughs> um, during Danny's first interview with the sheriff, Danny told uh, Cahoon that his roommate Earl Muris had gone to New Jersey that weekend to visit his girlfriend. Cahoon questioned if Brenda could have gotten a ride with Miris, and Danny stated, no, sir, sheriff. They didn't even know each other that well. After a few more minutes of questioning, Danny asked if he was free to leave and the sheriff let him go. Sheriff Cahoon didn't like that Danny's story had changed like it did. From him dropping Brenda off to him falling asleep and waking up to her being gone. John Fox, the uh, play general manager, said that Danny told him... So that Danny told him that he was scared of rainy rains, though. <laughs> Dang straight. Rainy was not slow to let her boys and quote unquote bo boys and girls know when she disapproved of their behavior. So it was very likely that's why he lied in the first place. I feel you. This doesn't deter Sheriff Calhoun, though. Calhoun. And you're going to quickly realize the man focuses way too much on Danny. I mean, it's sketch for sure, but there are several other suspects, and as of right now, Brenda is just missing. Fair. Later, that's... I mean, ideally, they would be focused on finding her right now. Yeah. But he, and we'll get into it in part two, Sheriff Cahoon becomes kind of obsessed with Danny, and he puts blinders on. So, go ahead and prepare. Just, he has Danny okay. in the pictures. Our author of the book has somebody else in their their purview, and I think it's somebody else. So we'll come to that conclusion in two weeks, people. Maybe I'll pick a different one. You might. We'll all have our own blinders on. Don't tell me who what, who believes what. Although I already know the Danny one. Yeah. So later that same night, Cahoon went to the hotel where Rodney Brett, Danny's roommate worked and questioned him in an office there. Rodney told the sheriff, and this is a quote from the statement, I worked until about 11.30 p.m. As soon as I got off work, I went to the tap room and had three or four beers, as I usually did. Then I came straight home. I went to bed about one. I had only been in bed a very short time when Danny came in. Danny stopped in the living room only a very short time, then he went upstairs. At first, I thought Danny was alone. There was very little noise and no music, records, or radio playing. After Danny went upstairs, I heard a woman's voice up in his room. There's a grill vent in the ceiling above my room that goes into the floor of Danny's room. 
I heard very plainly the voices of Danny and a girl and heard the bed springs springs making a lot of noise. I assumed they had sex or at least assumed that was what was going on because of the noise. I dropped off to sleep and was awakened by what I thought was a cat scratching on the front door screen. But I was sure I heard the front door open and close, but I didn't hear any car start up. I went back to sleep when I woke up about 7.45 or 8. I got up and left the house. I was sure that Danny's and Earl's cars were both parked in the yard about their usual places. Late Saturday night at our house, Danny and I were talking about Brenda's disappearance. He said, You do not know it, but I had Brenda here at the house and in my room last night. I told him. (laughs) Spoiler alert. (laughs) Yes, I did know that you had Brenda in your room last night because I heard both of you upstairs. (laughs) You weren't as quiet as you thought. Yeah. Apparently, Rodney was nervous about staying in the house after that. This made Sheriff Cahoon even more suspicious. But, I mean, so my opinion on that is, like, if you have somebody who was last seen with somebody who disappeared, would you not be nervous yourself? I mean, I would Absolutely. Well, especially if you don't know what they did after. Like, maybe his first thing that he said was accurate. Maybe he did drop her off. She just didn't go inside. Yeah. There's a thought. I mean, are you just sitting there trying to tell me her landlady just looked out the window until she saw nothing happen and then just stayed up, continued to stay up all night long? No. So what she's saying is she never came home. That doesn't mean that after he dropped her off, something else didn't happen after that true like say the crazy other guy was standing there waiting because he noticed she wasn't home and waited for her to get home and grabbed her off the side of the road i'm just spitballing here i'm just saying that's a possibility you can't just like zero in on one person at this point in my opinion i do and maybe he changed his his story that quickly because it was like oh just shoot um let me come up with something else it doesn't necessarily mean he was lying at the fir- at, at the beginning. It was well, just like, well, what's going to be easier for me to prove? Okay, well, I fell asleep. I think that he actually was lying to begin with. And I think he did it. I think he did it for multiple reasons. And we'll kind of get into it in the second episode. But moreover, I think he did it because he was actually afraid of Rainy. And a lot of people were. And he was an outsider. If anything had happened to Brenda, the first person they're going to go after is somebody who's not from the town. Oh, for sure. So, and I think there's a loyalty aspect. Yeah. I think he knew that. So there's a lot of different moving pieces in this game. I'm just saying you can't go like with one theory just because somebody changed their story. Yes. That typically means that they lied, but not always. Sometimes they just are freaking scared because they know they're the last person that's been confirmed that saw them. What am I going to do? If she ends up dead, everybody's going to be looking at me. No, I completely agree. Your first thought is like, holy fuck, I'm going to be, it's going to depend on me. You know? Because I mean, let's be honest. Our first thought is about ourselves most of the time. Yeah. It just is what it is. So Monday morning. So this is two days. Three, I guess three days after Brenda was last seen. Uh, 
Monday morning, teams of about 75 searchers started going through the woods on Burnside Road. At the same time of the search, Robert Midget, who lived about a quarter of a mile up Burnside Road from um, Danny Barber's house, told Sheriff Cahoon that before dawn Saturday morning, he heard strange sounds on the road near his uh, frame house. And this is the transcript of what he told the sheriff. I heard a car come by the house that sounded like it was about to cut off. And as it passed by my house, it moved slowly a short distance, approximately 120 yards from my house and stopped. I want to make clear that Robert, wait, no, Rodney Midget was lying in bed and not looking out of his window when he makes this approximate distance. Well, I also want to know what the sound is that he's describing. How do you know what that sound it comes up later when we sounds start. Really, when we I start mean, just the description sounds really weird. But also, I was thinking yards, like that's. Yeah, it was just. It was a exact. really weird. When I read that, I was like, "How do you even?" Sure, okay, sir. And then I got farther down. And I was like, "This motherfucker hadn't even gotten up out of bed, and he's making these approximate distances." Get the fuck out of here. Anyway, cars come up later, and that's why we have this in here. After the car had been stopped for approximately three minutes again approximately i heard my neighbor's dog run out to the corner of the yard and growl i got up out of bed and looked out the window but the car was too far down the road to see but i heard a man's voice saying that dog is a big dog (laughs) but i did not hear any answer and the dog did not bark anymore i looked at my clock and it was 3 a.m. And shortly after that, I heard a sound like tools clanging on the road. This is important. Then everything was silent. There was no sound of any kind for 20 to 30 minutes. Later, I heard a scream like a woman screaming loudly, as if she were trying to make an O sound, then silence after that for about 20 or 30 minutes. The next thing I heard was a scraping sound on the hard surface that sounded like a hoe scraping the road. And then everything was silent, and a few minutes later, I heard the car start, and at this time, it was about daylight. It was around 5. So, a lot to unpack here. Uh, I want to point out that there was a woman, uh, another woman around this area, who also heard... Uh, a screaming woman at that time however the road that they're talking about was right next to a neighborhood that was a black community and the woman said she quite frequently heard women screaming from that black neighborhood and so it wasn't uncommon for her to hear things like that and yeah well i mean they don't say anything until something gets brought up right yeah you i mean in the worst of circumstances, you don't want anybody to pay attention to you in those situations. So you look the other way because saying something brings attention to you. Yeah. So there's that situation. But also the one thing I was thinking about is when you were talking about his, um, well, number one eyewitness testimony is notoriously flawed. Yeah. Um, but also timelines and at night, especially when you're lying in bed are extremely extremely unreliable because there have been times where I have thought that I did not get a wink of sleep. 
I thought I was up for a solid hour, but I actually wear one of those watches that measures your movement to see when you're awake and when you're asleep. And it actually showed that I had fallen asleep for, you know, in the 15 minutes I woke up when I knew what the time was. And then where I thought I was still awake for an hour or two, I'd actually fallen asleep briefly for an hour, two hours and woke up after that. And I had thought, I genuinely had thought that I had been awake the entire time. Yeah. So again, timelines, especially at night, you're laying in bed, you haven't gotten up. Notoriously unreliable. I agree. I agree. And I do that same thing. Um, Fall asleep, waking up. Feels like I haven't been asleep. Feels like I've been awake forever. Blah, blah, blah. So I agree with you on that. I think maybe some of what he said might be true. I think um, he looked at the clock and yeah. it coincided with what he said at that time. But outside of that. But also, it, it could have nothing to do with Brenda. Very true. Just because he lived in the vicinity of Danny's house does not no, mean- By all means. Oh, sorry. I hit my mic. That's, That's the first time I've done it in a while. <laughs> um, it doesn't mean don't say something. If you hear something or see something, by all means, say something. But- it's up to the investigators to put the pieces of the puzzle together. So it may or may not have anything to do with it, but by all means report it. Let the investigators decide if it's pertinent also, it's or not. It's up to the investigators to make sure that they put the puzzle pieces where they need to be and not just jam one in place where Correct. it seems to fit. So soapbox done. Um, later that Monday, midget actually comes up again Um he worked at the Dare County Liquor Store. And this guy's all over the place. <laughs> he is, isn't he? He was actually the manager there, the store manager there. And later that Monday, when George Washington King walked in, George was a black man and was described as illiterate. Midget overheard George talking to his sales manager as... King bought a pint of whiskey. King said he'd found a wallet while driving his lawn cutting tractor on Scarborough Town Road in uh, Mantillo. The wallet turned out to be Brenda's. The sales manager directed George to turn the wallet in to the police. But when Midget followed up with the police, King hadn't stopped by the station. So I just want to point out that it is 19, the 1970s a black man has been found with a white missing woman's wallet and the sheriff is a white man. Can you guess where this is going? I had an inkling. Well, you'd be surprised to find out it's actually not going there. Cahoon quickly realized King had nothing to do with it. <laughs> Good job. Yeah. He asked George to take him to where he found the wallet. Near where the wallet was found, deputies discovered Brenda's bag, eyebrow pencil, and comb. Before they could check the area for footprints, however, it started to rain. And we're not talking like just a mild rain. It became like a turret, like just a downpour. Which what, would have obliterated any kind of tracks or yeah. evidence. Yeah. So it was just kind of bad timing, bad luck. Um What's interesting, though, is the papers pretty much made uh, King out to be a hero. 
Oh, there you go. He was like, well, I mean, it was it was a huge piece of the puzzle, though. <laughs> yeah, and I was just really surprised about that because, you know, he was uh, he was a black man for all accounts. He seemed to be an alcoholic, but he had found a. I and for my mind, when I was reading, it, I was like, oh my god, they're gonna think this black man did it and all of this other stuff. And I was just like pleasantly surprised to see like the headline pictures of him, like local black man by (laughs) opens and turns it in and now we have a piece of the puzzle yeah so i was just super surprised about that and i was like kudos to you guys you know way to go not that's how it that's how it should happen by the way yeah not that i have i should have to give them kudos but you know what whatever um soon the sbi the state bureau of investigation agents were assigned to the case There's a lot, there's like, I think it's three or four different SBI agents that are assigned to this case that end up going out there. They go into like profiles on these agents and stuff like that. I didn't give a fuck, so I'm going to assume that none of you do, and I'm not going to cover them. That's fine. Because it didn't really matter to me. By Tuesday, Shotgun Holland and his wife had arrived to Mantio. Shotgun was beside himself. He was chain smoking his cool cigarettes. You remember cools? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I used to smoke those. So bad for you. They're so bad. So bad for you. This is why my voice sounds the way it does. Uh, (laughs) And drinking just a little nip to calm his nerves. He was also walking around with a revolver and a knife. (laughs) Okay. Drinking a little nip, smoking a little smoke, and guns. I've got guns. Uh. Welcome to North Carolina in the 1970s. <laughs> Welcome to North Carolina in 2022. I was about to say, it <laughs> Searches continued Wednesday as more items soon identified as Brenda's by her roommate were found. There was like a whole list of makeup. I'm not going to go into that they found. A copy of Zorba the Greek. Yes. A prescription for Brenda. I, I wonder how common was that? I can't imagine it was that common. I had never heard of Zorba the Greek. Oh, really? Yeah. And I'm, if you guys don't know this, I am a huge book nerd. (laughs) Yes, you are. (laughs) And I had never heard of it. So, you know, I'm just talking about it all the time now. Um, Anyway, a prescription for Brenda and a Valentine card. This is what I was kind of confused about and the way it was written in here was kind of confusing but there was a prescription for Brenda that was tucked into the book and then there was also a Valentine's card to shotgun and this is exact this is a quote from the book there was a Valentine's card to shotgun from a niece of Brenda's and I was like a niece of Brenda's would that be her sister Anne's daughter but I don't think her sister has any kids so I don't know that's weird Whatever. It might be like a misprint or something like that. I wasn't sure. But I included it, just so you know. There was also a Valentine's Day card that was, I guess, for shotgun. Um, Her sandals were found along... So, all of this was found near... uh, God, I can't remember now. It was was found um, near the road where Danny lived. But on US 64 West, right before you get to the bridge to Man's Harbor... So there's a giant bridge that goes into the island 
Romance Horror over there. Um, her sandals were found. So it was farther away. I, I keep pointing. Nobody can see me. I, I don't know what I'm doing. That's why I say the video will be fantastic once we start doing <laughs> I know. Um, It'll help you decide on which direction she's referring to. <laughs> yeah. It's, not, it's probably not even the right direction. I'm just mashed potato grains. Sheriff Cahoon also questioned Danny's other roommate, Earl Miris Wednesday, when he returned back home. Miris had gone out of town to visit his girlfriend early Saturday morning. Miris said about Friday night in a statement, and I quote, Friday afternoon, I got off work and came home about 5 to 5.30 p.m. When I got home, there was no one there. I ate dinner. I ate dinner there and went to a service station for a can of wax to polish my car. I did that and worked on my car in front of the house until it was dark. Then I went inside and sorted some clothes and worked and shined my shoes and went to bed about 10.30. Nobody had gotten home. I didn't see either of my housemates that night. I didn't hear anyone enter or leave the house. I got up Saturday morning at 8. I ate breakfast at home, ran some errands, and left Mantillo about 10.30 a.m. I drove directly to, MG, to the MG dealership in Norfolk where I got some parts for my car to fix and a burnt valve. I drove on to some friend's house in Asbury Park, New Jersey, stopped for a few minutes, and then drove on to my girlfriend's house in Fairhaven, New Jersey, arriving after 11 p.m. Saturday. I got back there at 5.30. I got back here at 5.30 this morning. I knew nothing about Miss Holland being missing until my boss told me about it. I subleased rooms to Danny Barber and Rodney Brett and have only known them for about three weeks. Because of their irregular working hours, I seldom see them and don't know anything about them. The sheriff then asked Miris if he would take a polygraph test, and Miris agreed. The following day, Major John A. King of the North Carolina Civil Air Patrol spotted something in the Albemarle Sound while flying. He got closer and was able to make out what looked like someone floating in the water. It concerned him because the area in the sound was not a place for recreation. When he got as close as he safely could, he discovered it was a body floating face up near the shore. The, course, the corpse was bumping up against the knees of the cypress trees. He radioed the coordinates to the Dare County Sheriff's Office in Mantillo. Sheriff Cahoon had a dentist for your teeth. A dentist. As opposed to a dentist for what? I don't know. <laughs> Thank the, you for the clarification, though. It's just, I, uh, whatever. He, he had a dentist from Greensboro, Jim Henson, who had a vacation home in Albemarle Sound, lend him his boat. <laughs> Because the police, even though they're surrounded by water, the police department or the sheriff's office didn't have their own boat. Okay. Yeah. So they had to contact a local dentist or not even a local dentist. We will talk oh, about a local dentist. Basically a visiting dentist. Yeah. Um, but a local dentist comes up later and this is going to be great. Um, Seems random, but okay. Uh, tell me about it. Um, so... They contact him to lend them a boat. And 
So once Jim Henson and the sheriff reach the body, they use a tarp. The dentist, Jim Henson, had grabbed before they got on the boat and pulled the body onto the boat. So the sheriff didn't even bring the tarp. It was provided by this this vacationing dentist. You know what? I feel like if it had been nowadays, he would have been like a true crime listener to all the podcasts. And he'd be like, I know exactly what we need in this situation. Just would have had everything. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you got a body? You got a body? Okay, I got a tarp. We can we can figure this out. We can figure this out. Uh, It's going to get worse. But it's going to get worse in part two. It's not going to get worse in this one. The body was very bloated and decomposed. There were lacerations and bruises, including on the face, as well as some type of marks across the neck. This is uh, gross, and it's going to be a trigger warning. Just all of this is a trigger warning, just in general. Only a few strands of blonde hair remained on her head. That's how decomposed she was. All right. And this was how many days? So this was following day. That was Wednesday, Thursday. So she went missing um, Friday, and then she was found the following Thursday. Well, not even a week. A corpse was found the following Thursday. We have not come to the identification. Uh, Ah, yes, fair. Okay. It was dressed in a maroon skirt, and the lower two-thirds of the skirt were turned inside out and pulled up to the level of the waist. So, like... Just yanked up, basically. Yeah. And I mean, she was in a, it was in a body of water. I don't know if that happened in the body of water. I don't know if somebody did it before. You know, there's no telling. On the torso were a silver necklace and some type of sleeveless garment with leopard skin design. Okay, I can see why they would have a feeling it was her. There was no blouse nor shoes. But if you remember, her shoes were found near the bridge off of 64 West, but her blouse was nowhere to be found. It's not that crazy to imagine. Yeah. Sheriff Cahoon was pretty certain this was Brenda. The description on the clothes she was wearing last mostly matched what was on the body. And I say mostly because she was missing the blouse. Once they got the body back to shore, God, Jesus Christ, back to shore, Cahoon radioed his dispatcher to send out Dr. Harvey in the Twyford's funeral home in Mantillo. He was basically having the funeral home bring a hearse so that they could move the body. He told dispatch to contact the medical examiner's office to prepare them for an autopsy. He also had them get in touch with Danny Barber and have him get to the sound right then. (sighs) While they waited, Dr. Henson, the dentist took a look at the corpse's teeth, noting that some of them were loose. He suggested someone probably hit her in the mouth. A state trooper took uh, photos of the corpse. Dr. Harvey, upon arrival, took a perfunctory look at the body once he was there. He He noted that it had been in the water for several days. He left further examination and findings to the pathologist, like he should. Acock Brown, a local photographer, showed up and he took photos of the body. Acock Brown is going to come up in the second part and he is going to, he means well. He's going to piss you off though. Okay. Thanks for the warning. You're welcome. Soon Danny arrived at the scene. 
why the fuck would you why do is this? He there? Like because Sheriff Cahoon had them go and pick Danny up to bring him out there to identify oh this gosh. body. Why? I guess he wanted to catch him off guard. Well, that would do it. So Danny arrived at the scene. Cahoon asked Danny if he could identify the body. And Danny said, that's Brenda. And that's where we're going to leave it for this week. Of course you are. What? Yeah. You're welcome. (sighs) Okay. I I, I have nothing else to say. I said everything I needed to. (laughs) I'm good. I just... I'll, I will wait for part two and then I will make my comments then. We're an hour and 40 minutes in. I know. could not go any longer. <laughs> no, you're fine. But while going to the rest of that interaction in the next uh, next episode, it, there's just, there's so Nothing much like on leaving it on a cliffhanger anyway. Hey. You know you like the drama. <laughs> I love drama. Feed it to me. <laughs> Let's go. All right, dude, I need to take a shower. And good job, me. Good job, you. Um, just good job, listeners. You five. We're doing a great job here at uh, Reaper Gals. Reaper We're doing our best. Tales.com. Whatever. Um, Sam, where can our listeners find us on Instagram? At Reaper Tales Podcast. You can find us at Reaper Tales Podcast on... Is it Reaper Tales Podcast or is it just Reaper Tales? It's Reaper Tales Podcast. <laughs> Reaper on Tales Facebook. Podcast. Shut up. <laughs> You can email us at ReaperGals at ReaperTales.com. I don't have to go through the whole spiel, but I will. Uh, send us compliments. Tell us how pretty we are. I have great hair. I love to hear compliments about my hair. She does have great hair, even if you can't see it, but you will eventually. That's eventually. Point. Yeah. Uh, send us your show suggestions and uh, just, you know, send us all around good vibes because we always want those. And we'll we love send good them back vibes. to you twofold. Absolutely. Um... Be sure to like, rate, subscribe, review, blah, 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 on whatever platform it is that you're listening. This just bumps us up in the ratings, and it makes sure that people actually follow and listen to our show. And if you like us, somebody else might like us, and somebody else won't hear about us unless you do all of the things. So do the things, people. Do the things. And until next time. The Reaper.